section, a paragraph, a chapter that we would go through, and honestly, it was really hard to pick. So I said, let's just cover the whole book in one chance. And so that's what we're going to try to do. And so if you have a Bible, just open up to the book of Colossians. If you're using one of the Bibles and the chairs underneath you, this is on page uh, 1043. And we're going to try to move along through the book of Colossians. Uh, Paul and Timothy were writing to this church at Colossae, who had, they had received word from Epaphras about this church. As far as we know, Paul did not start this church. Perhaps Epaphras had. Uh, as many people were coming to visit Paul within prison, they were bringing word and encouragement and status and letters from other churches to him. And they were also taking encouragements and, and words and letters to other churches that Paul was writing uh, to them. And so Paul wanted to write this specific congregation to, one, applaud them uh, for their embracement of the faith, but also to be encouragement to hold on to the sound teaching of Christ, what they first heard and what they first believed in. Uh, there seemed to be some false teachings going around that Jesus wasn't God, or there had to be certain practices that you had to do as a Christ follower to grow spiritually, and Paul wanted to address those false teachings. Um, Colossians is a shorter book. It's only uh, four chapters. And just so you are aware, chapters and verses were not in the original manuscripts. Chapters weren't added until the early 1200s. And so for nearly an entire thousand years, the church was reading the text without chapters. And then verses weren't added until a couple hundred years later. But the first half of the book is all about this theology of Christ the goodness and greatness of Christ. And then the second half is about how to live your life out according to that knowledge. And I think it's very interesting for us to note that you need to start with the right knowledge if you're going to live a right lifestyle. If you have the wrong knowledge, you are going to live a wrong lifestyle. If you have a wrong mindset about God or who Jesus is or what He expects, then you're going to worship incorrectly and you're going to participate in wrong religious activities thinking that you are being more spiritual by practicing these things because we have a wrong mindset. And so Paul's prayer for them in the early beginning of chapter 1 is that they would be filled with all the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and in spiritual understanding so that they can live a worth a life worth living for God, fully pleasing to Him. And I think that's a great prayer for us too, that we would grow in knowledge and all of God's wisdom and spiritual understanding so that we would live a life worthy of the Lord. And so that's my prayer this morning. We're going to highlight the greatness and goodness of Christ as well as how to live that truth out in our actions and in our relationships. So let's jump into Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 13. We don't have a chance to read the whole text, of course, but we're going to jump around to a couple of things. But starting in verse 13, He, and this is referring to God the Father, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us in the kingdom of the Son He loves, and that is Jesus. In Him... We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, this is referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that we might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Going back to that verse 13 there, he, God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. It's in him that we have redemption or we have been exchanged, we have been restored, we have been recovered through the forgiveness of our sins. Now what this means is that you and I, we were lost. That we were completely in a realm of darkness, unable to save ourselves. In fact, all of humanity, without God intervening, were just vessels floating down, say, a raging river towards a disastrous waterfall, towards eternal separation in hell without God. Without Christ, without the shedding of His blood, without God making a way, you and I and everyone else lives in that realm of darkness. And it wasn't as though we're just trapped there and we're trying to find our way, we're trying to get out. In fact, in verse 21, it says, once you were alienated, you were strangers, you were separated from God. You didn't belong in His kingdom. And you were hostile in your minds expressed towards your actions. You were an enemy of God. You were hostile to God. You didn't want His help. You wanted to try to figure out things on your own. But it was God who reconciled, who resolved the problem, our problem, by His physical body through His death to present you and I holy, faultless, and blameless before Him. So it's in Christ that you and I are seen as holy, as pure, because we are in Christ, the blood of Christ covers our sinfulness. This whole section, as Paul launches out, this whole section about Christ is so rich in the greatness of Christ. I think to read this passage and to walk away and just think, yeah, Jesus was just a good guy. He was a good teacher. He was a good example to follow so that we know how to live this life. I don't know how you walk away from this passage and think those things. I don't know how we walk away from this passage and not be in awe of the greatness of Jesus. Because Christ is God. He is the exact revealed image of the invisible God. No one has ever seen God. In the past, the Israelites had seen revelations of God, like a, a flame coming down from heaven. There's this a pillar of fire, this burning bush, a still small voice. 
a handwriting on a wall or there were some visions as they tried to write this, something that's so indescribable. And Jesus said, no one has ever seen God, but if you have seen me, you have seen the Father because I and the Father are one. Jesus was not a creation that began his existence some 2,000 years ago. He existed way back before anything else was ever created. Whether it's things that we can see and study and understand and those things that are a mystery to our finite understanding, Jesus created everything. So he wasn't just another man created by God. Everything was created through him, by him, and for him. He is before all things. In verse 17, he is before all things and by him all things hold together. This holding together means that he continues, he endures, it consists because of him. See, Jesus did not just create everything, spin it in a motion, and then it kind of evolved and, and it's working out as it's going along in time and space. It's Jesus that holds everything together so that it can continue as long as he wants it to continue. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a hard time just keeping myself together for an entire week and my own schedule on task. And as a man, this man, Jesus, holds everything together, the entire universe. Just think about the vastness of the universe. Just think about you in your seat. Think about the people around you. Think about this church. Expand that out and think about the car in the parking lot and the driveway and the path that you took to get here and the roads and all the other people and the trees and the hills and the mountains. And extend that out and we go within our region and our state and more trees and mountains and even oceans and animals and fish and go beyond that into our, our country and go beyond that into hundreds of countries around the world. And then go beyond that and there's the moon and space and what makes up space and more planets. And you're going beyond that and that's our sun and our solar system. And you go well beyond that and there's more suns and stars and planets and we don't even know what's out there and combine that all together and that's a galaxy. And then you go beyond that and there's other galaxies Jesus holds it all together. How does he do that? And then you think about the smallest electron and particle. Just think about your own body and how it's made up. Think about the nervous system in your body. These cables that run through all your body to give it energy. And, and you're able to feel a hair across your fingers. Think about the cardiovascular system as this heart pumps blood to everywhere that it needs to go to give it life. You have the respiratory system that breathes in the air and knows what it needs and what it doesn't and keeps what it needs and takes out what it doesn't. And then it takes that and it pushes it and the heart gets it to where it needs to go. The digestive system. You can eat something and it breaks it down into the energy that it needs and uses what it needs and takes care of what it doesn't need. The muscular system, the endocrine system, 
the lymphatic system, the reproductive system, the skeletal system, the immune system, the intermediary system, all of the systems just in your body. And Jesus holds it all together. You and I ought to be blown away at who this Jesus is. This Jesus is not just a man. This Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a good example to follow. He is God. And he has rescued us from the realm of darkness and placed us into a kingdom that we do not belong. And he holds everything together. And this Jesus, it says he is the head of the body, the church. This universal invisible church as well as the local visible church. He's not just the founder. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And here, I'll pass it on to you and you guys figure it out. Jesus is the head of the church. He's still the CEO. He is the complete owner of 100% of the shares. This church, the body, where all believers, you and I who have been rescued out of darkness, who have put our faith in him, we're part of this living spiritual body that gets all of our directives, all of our information from the head who is Jesus. And so I believe that a church that does not promote Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, who does not proclaim that salvation is in Christ alone, who only sees Jesus as a good teacher, is really teaching a false Jesus and is not holding on to the true head of Christianity. And I'm thankful that this Jesus, who is the creator and sustainer of everything, is the head of the church. Because that means that his church, the one who holds it all together, his church will prevail. His church will experience life to its fullest. Even as pastors change, even as church buildings close, even when people are persecuted and thrown into jail, God will build his church because God is still rescuing people from the realm of darkness. And if you continue in chapter 1, it talks about why Paul is such a servant to this gospel. It's why he rejoices in his suffering for the sake of the gospel proclamation. It's why so many have laid down their lives over the centuries for the good news of Jesus. It's why so many of you have given so much because of the gospel message. Because you want more and more people to hear the good news. And you want more and more people to be connected to his body. And that's why you and I need to know Jesus more and more every week. We need to be filled with all the knowledge of him. The more that we know him, the more that we hold on to him, the more that we obey his word, the more confident we are, not in ourselves and in our own abilities. In fact, we're more confident not in our own abilities, but more in who God is, who Jesus is, more in his supremacy, his superiority, more in his grace and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness. And that ultimately changes how we view life. It changes how we spend our money, how we spend our vacations. It changes how we deal with people. It changes how we parent. It changes how we do marriage. It changes how we date. It changes how we work, how we talk. It changes our weekends, our weeknights. It really does change everything. 
Jesus is that creator, the sustainer of everything. He is the preeminent one of God, the head of the church. And therefore, Jesus needs to be the Lord of every aspect in our lives. He needs to be the Lord of the bedroom, the Lord of our phone, the Lord of our work, the Lord of our school, the Lord of our family, the Lord of our minds, the Lord of our eyes. He transforms all of our relationships, all of our desires, all of our activities. And so we don't just sprinkle on Jesus just a little bit. We're inviting Jesus in everywhere and allowing him to change whatever needs to be changed, to take out what needs to be taken out and add what needs to be added. And that's Paul's message. I mean, we continue in in chapter 3. This is where he brings that up. Now that we have this understanding of who Jesus is, who Christ is, what he has done for you and I, what do we need to do? And in chapter 3, starting in verse 3, let's read. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, And you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now put away all of the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices. And so Paul is saying, there are some things that clash with you being a Christ follower. And so you need to work on putting those things out. In verse 3, it says, for you died. Now, when you're in the realm of darkness, you were already lost. You were already dead in your trespasses and sin. And it's only because of Jesus that you have life. He has given us death to life. And because our life is in Christ, this is why you and I do these things. Because there's things that just do not fit with being a Christ follower. Jesus has rescued us from sin. Sin no longer has a hold on us. Sin no longer has any power on us. We know that it was all nailed to the cross. Even the sin that you aren't even aware of that you're going to commit tomorrow. God already knew about it. He already took it. He already nailed it to the cross. So there's no more condemnation in Christ. There's just put off and put on. And we need to keep practicing living that life out that God has given us. This isn't just a one-time decision and somehow everything falls into place. You've been a Christian for a while, you know that. Just because you made a decision to follow after Jesus doesn't mean your life is now all perfect. You've got to work that out and we wrestle with our own spirit in that. It's not about earning our salvation and losing our salvation and earning it again because I know our salvation is in Christ alone, but it's about working our response to faith out as we believe in it, trust in it, rely on it. And so we're called to practice that out. You know, some old mindsets are very hard to break. And some old habits are difficult to change. You know, when you're moving from a life of spiritual poverty, spiritual enslavement, to something that you're used to living, and then moving into spiritual freedom and spiritual blessings, sometimes we're not sure how to really live that out. It gets comfortable to put those old clothes back on. And Paul uses that imagery of put on and put off here. 
it's not just like acting like a Christian, looking like a Christian. It's not about coming to church and, and looking nice and carrying a big Bible and, and speaking the outs, all the ways of Christian talk. It's really about you having a genuine desire to live like Christ and you're doing the best you can. You're working it out. And sometimes it's about changing what we look like. It's about how we talk. It's about how we interact. It's about our responses. But you're doing the best you can, not to fool others, not to fool yourself, but to really try to practice out living a life worthy of Christ. And so every day we're putting off what clashes and we're putting on what matches. And we see that in chapter 3 in verse 12. It says, therefore, as God's chosen one, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has any grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. There's so many examples just in here in this passage for you and I to practice this week, this month. And the New Testament is full of so many things that you and I can practice on. And the only way that we get there is if we read God's word. And then we challenge ourselves to live according to that word. And that's a high bar of transformation. That whatever we do, whether in word or deed, that we're doing it in the name of Christ. And that's something that you and I have to work on. But we have to remember that God is with us. That God took us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's equipped us to do what he's called us to do. And so he's still there. He's correcting us, training us, guiding us, teaching us, providing us clothes of righteous clothing to wear. And not only is this difficult enough to practice in our own personal life, but he's calling us to live this out in our relationships around us and in our workplace. Look at chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being washed as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly. Fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it for from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you'll receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Jesus. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there's no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you have a master in heaven. And this is about renovating true change in your home. So Paul is moving from this understanding of who Jesus is, and out of that flows a lifestyle that you and I need to practice and put into place. And it's not just about our own personal walk, but it's also about our walk and interaction with the relationships around us. And the place in which your Christian walk will be on most display is not here at church. It's at home and it's at work. And so it's important for us to know that what happens at home and what happens at work 
are just as important, if not more important, than what happens here at the church. Paul gives instructions all over the place of what he needs to happen in the church. We see a good example of a great church in the book of Acts. But a whole lot of the New Testament and a whole lot of words of Jesus is about the Christian life, about what happens when you and I aren't gathered together. In our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplaces. What makes a Christ-like marriage different than a world-like marriage? Well, one of them is a woman, a wife, puts herself under the headship of the husband as the church does with Christ. Now, a wife is not expected to follow after the husband if the husband's leading them into sin, into a lifestyle that's contrary to God, but she seeks his directive, his wisdom, his leadership with respect. She understands that he's not perfect and therefore wants to encourage and support him. She models Christ-like attitudes and actions, whether he's a believer or not. And a godly husband knows that God has given her as a smart and capable helpmate. And so he listens to her, seeks to understand her views and perspectives, loves on her as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. So he doesn't get upset and bitter towards her when she doesn't always follow his lead. And he knows that she isn't perfect. So he wants to encourage her and support her in her pursuit of living out a Christ-like faith. And he models Christ-like attitudes and actions, whether or not she is a believer. And this goes, carries on through the children and the parent relationship. What is a Christ-like family different than a world-like family? Well, it's where children obey their parents. Now, obedience here is quickly responding to listen. It's not necessarily immediately completing a command which is difficult for parents, including myself, to make the difference. The imagery of obedience is someone knocking on the door and one goes to the door to see who it is and what do they want. And so an obedient child will hear their parents knocking, hello, I need your attention. And the child responds, yes, what would you like me to do? Sometimes there's an urgency to respond, but obedience is just that they hear, heard you and they're listening to you. Of course, it's easier for a child to respond in obedience when that home is not filled with exacerbation. That's a big word. I don't even like that. Translations. Let's pick something else. But this word provokes a, a provoking, a pursuing, a consistent prompting negatively that causes irritation and anger and resentment and discouragement and ultimately distances between the parent and the child. And there's a lot of reasons in which that might happen. And so it's just good for a godly parent to understand that a child is not a miniature adult. So they can't do what you as a parent can do. They can't think and process like you as a parent. And so they're a gift to you from God. And then you have a responsibility to nurture them and instruct them in the ways of God through appropriate affection and through appropriate authority. And we can spend a lot of time on any of those relationships, and we're certainly flying through them. And then Paul includes this instructions to slave in the household structure. Because at that time, in that culture, slavery was a norm. Slaves were either prisoners of war, paying off a debt, they were bought as workers, or they were criminals enduring punishment. They weren't 
treated well. They didn't have rights. Sometimes they weren't viewed as equal humans. And the Bible is addressing the cultural norm to live differently than the cultural norm. So when we look at these instructions, it's not really fair to apply them to our workplace. The employer-employee relationship that you and I experience is not the same as a master and a slave relationship. So we need to understand that. But it still has some good work ethic principles in here, right? Work with excellence, with passion and purpose. Work not for people only when they're looking. And employers need to treat their workers with fairness and honesty, full integrity, treating them as God would treat them. Well, then Paul finishes out the letter uh, writing some encouragements about certain people who have done some great things for the ministry. But I want to just look at one briefly, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 2. It says, devote yourselves to prayer, to stay alert in it with thanksgiving. And Paul wraps it up there, saying that the only way that you and I are going to get to a place where we're filled with the knowledge of all God's wisdom and spiritual understanding so that we can walk a life worthy of the Lord is when we devote ourselves to prayer. Prayer is something that all of us should never underestimate. We know it's something that all of us want to do more, that we need to be a part of it, and we have to work really hard at it. But this word devote means to be persistent, to do it regularly, and to put some weight behind it. So it's not just kind of uh, as you're going about your day, kind of tossing up a word to God. That, that's great. We need to be persistent in prayer. But this devotion is really it's kind of prayer that drives us to our knees in humility and thankfulness and expectation and anticipation and reminding ourselves who God is, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of everything, the head of the church. So it brings us to our knees in humility and we devote ourselves to God. It reminds us how we were brought from darkness into light. And we pray that more people would experience being moved from the realm of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves to experience the forgiveness of sins. And when you and I are putting our requests to the one who holds it all together, what a privilege and an honor that you and I have to pray the one like that. And so that's why in March we're doing a prayer emphasis on Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays. And we're asking you, you of course can pray on the other days of the week. We encourage you to do that, devote yourselves to prayer. But we want to just help uh, as a church to drive towards prayer on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. On Monday, M, we're asking you to pray for missions, ministries, other churches. Um, you know, you're driving around, you see another church, pray for that church. Pray for the people who go to that church, that they would know the true Jesus, the gospel message. Uh, on Wednesday, pray for workers, co-workers. Pray for your own work. Pray for other businesses. Pray for those who are unemployed. And then Friday, pray for family and friends. Pray for their health, but also pray for their salvation. 
And next week we're going to have some boards uh, in the alcove there that you're going to be able to write some names or some businesses or ministries on there. Uh, if it, you're writing a name, I encourage just the first name and you can pin it up there. And I know that there are other people in the church who will walk by there and in their notebook, they're going to write down other people that you pulled up there and they're going to be in prayer for the things that you're in prayer for. And so I want us, as we enter into Mars, to not underestimate the power of prayer because we're not underestimating the power of the one that we're praying to. Jesus, who rescued you and I from a realm of darkness. The creator, the sustainer, the one who holds it all together. So let's pray. God, we are humbled. One, by the majesty of who you are. We cannot really fully comprehend the vastness, the complexity, the amazement of your creation, the expanse of it, as well as the minute workings of your creation. And God, this, this, this did not happen by chance. It did not just happen by a man. This happened through you, something supernatural. And God, we pray that we would know more and more of who you are. We would be filled with your, your knowledge, and we know that that comes through reading your word. And so we want to we know your word more. We want to be in it on a daily basis, renewing our minds away from our own knowledge and our own desires and our own schedule to your knowledge, to the actions that you want us to fulfill, that we would live a life worthy, that our life would reflect, that our life would represent you. God, that's a challenge to help us to put off the things that clashes as a Christ follower and put on what matches as a Christ follower. Let us not look to one another and, and condemn those who fail and are not perfect. None of us are perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect Christ follower. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage, a perfect family. Help us do that. In the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Would you please stand? We're going to close out our service in a song. Uh, Pastor Ken and I will be out in the lobby right after the service. We'd love to be able to connect and say hello. And uh, if you have your offering or prayer cards, you can put those in the boxes right outside the door.